We're going to start our study this morning with Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So if you'd turn there in your Bibles. Luke begins something here in Luke chapter 11, verse 19, that is really quite different. I could even see having a new chapter begin here at verse 19, because what comes after this in the section in this section of the book of Acts is different than what happens before. Remember, as you've been going through the book of Acts, as we've worked our way through it with me, there are three lines of expansion from the persecution that took place with Stephen, who was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Each of these lines revolve around key men God used for the progress of the gospel. First, Philip preached the word in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Then second, Peter went out on a journey and healed the lame man in Lydda and raised Tabitha from the dead in Joppa in Acts chapter 10. And then third and finally, Peter went to the the Gentile Roman centurion Cornelius to his house in Caesarea and preached the word there. And the Gentiles responded in the first part of Acts chapter 11. But now, surprisingly, some unnamed men go to Antioch. In every story so far in Acts, those who are taking the gospel forth have been named and prominently featured. The story has revolved around Peter or Stephen or Philip or Saul. But here in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, we surprisingly and interestingly see that some unnamed individuals who are, that some unnamed individuals are the means by which the gospel progress moves forward. And the gospel takes on a very Gentile flavor from it, which it will not retreat in the rest of the book. Look at verse 19 with me. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was upon them or was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Out of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, after Stephen is martyred in Acts 7, grew the spread of the gospel. The gospel was spread north up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to modern-day Lebanon and into Syria and into the sea to the island of Cyprus. But the gospel had only been spoken to the Jews initially. And then there at the beginning of verse 20, there is a little word, but. The word but is a tiny little three-letter word, but sometimes it is placed by God in a place that has immense impact. Probably the one place that but has impacted me more than any place else is in Ephesians 2. So turn with me to Ephesians 2 real quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 1, we see the great salvation that God has sovereignly provided to those He has chosen and called before the foundation of the world. And now in Ephesians 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul describes our spiritually dead condition apart from Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then comes verse 4. But God. There it is at the start of verse 4. But God. On our own, in ourselves, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. We are unable to come to God. What did God do? What does but God tell us about Him? Let's read starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God, who is merciful, loving, by grace saved us through faith. And on and on Paul goes. That's the best but that I know of in the Scriptures. But in our passage today, there are three significant verses of... Three significant uses of the word. And they all point to the power of God, to the hand of the Lord Jesus as he exercises mercy, love, and grace towards his children. Let's go back to Acts chapter 11. The first of these uses is right here in verse 20, where we are told, but there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. From the island of Cyprus and Cyrene in North Africa. They have come to Antioch in Syria and they are proclaiming Christ to the Hellenists. That is to the Greeks and the Gentiles. Not only to the Jews. But they are doing so in this cosmopolitan city of Antioch. For Antioch from now on in the book of Acts will become the launching pad of the Christian church. The center of the church is moving from Jerusalem to Antioch. And these unknown men are responsible for it. God has given them a mission. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. It was mostly Syrian in population, Greek in culture, Roman in government, and Eastern in its influence. It was a metropolitan city. A city that was extremely sinful and known for its evil. It vied with Corinth on the continent of Europe for a reputation as the most evil of cities. But it became the headquarters for the spread of the gospel to the Gentile world. We don't know who these unmanned were, unnamed men were who preached to the Gentiles in Antioch. They evidently were just ordinary Christians, at least as far as we know. They are not officials. They're not said to hold any special position in the church. Certainly they're not apostles or elders or deacons. They're not said to be even teachers or anything like that. They were just believers. But they were believers in whose hearts 
was the fire of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they could not keep from preaching it. And so they went to Antioch and they began to preach Jesus as Lord. In fact, in the original language, the word that is used of their preaching is just the word that I might use to carry on a conversation with you or with anyone for that matter. So they were just talking about our Lord. And so these individuals went to Antioch and they are the instruments of God, the ones he has chosen to use in a significant move for the church and in a significant move for the outpouring of the gospel, which eventually reaches all the way to us in the Western world. These people spoke about Jesus as Lord. They were moved to tell their friends about Christ. Nothing can be more important than to tell your relatives, your friends, and those with whom you come in contact about Jesus Christ. The greatest thing you can do, the greatest thing that any of us can do, is to talk with another about Christ. So that's what these men are doing. These people are doing. The great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, says of this passage, And they just preach the simple message of the Lord with intensity and sincerity. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And that's exactly what the next verse says. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed. The hand of the Lord points to Jesus' power. In this case, the power of Jesus to save sinners. So we don't labor alone when we preach the word. And you don't labor alone when you tell others about the gospel. The hand of the Lord is there with you. The hand of the Lord prepares individuals to come to a service like this or to convince men and women of their sin and their need of a Savior. Saying the hand of the Lord was with them is just another way of saying that faith, given in the power of Jesus, is the gift of God. You can be sure that when you give out the message to your neighbor, to your family, to your friends, that God works with His Word. It never comes back empty, but always accomplishes its purpose. And so you're not responsible for the conversion of those you talk to about Jesus. Rather, it is God who is ultimately responsible for their conversion. Rather, it is our responsibility, like these men who came to Antioch, to give out the message that Jesus called us to give out, to be witnesses for Christ. Let's look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, if all these people turning to the Lord, why, news reached the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem was, and particularly the believers there, well, they were a little bit disturbed when they heard what was going on at Antioch because they wondered if it was genuine. So they sent a man by the name of Barnabas to Antioch 
in order to find out what's really going on. Now, Barnabas is a good fit for this task. He's from Cyprus. He had been a Jew growing up in a Gentile place. He was accustomed to interacting with Gentile people. And so he went to Antioch from Jerusalem. And when he came, what did he see? He saw the grace of God. It was clear God had worked. It's obvious they'd experienced the blessing of God. And in Barnabas, they had found a man who was willing to acknowledge that God really had acted there. And he was glad for it. And his next words reflected his experience as part of the church in Jerusalem as he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. Barnabas knew what it was like to be persecuted. He knew what it was like to feel the rejection of family and friends, to perhaps lose a job, to lose your position in the community and your reputation, all for the sake of Christ. And so his encouragement to them was to be steadfast in purpose in their faith. And it's important for us too then to exhort one another to remain faithful. Next you'll notice Barnabas is called a good man. Why was he a good man? Not because of himself or how exemplary he was, but because he was under the control of the Holy Spirit. And why was he under the control of the Holy Spirit? Because he was a man of faith in Jesus Christ. And I think you can see what a faithful and good man Barnabas was by what he does next. It seems the first thing Barnabas did was to understand what this growing group of believers needed. And the first thing that came to his mind was his old friend Saul. Saul, who had been converted on the Damascus Road. Saul, who based on the scriptures he last saw in Jerusalem several years ago. And so he apparently departed pretty quickly toward the west, to the city of Tarsus, to find Saul, to tell him what was happening in Antioch, and to recruit Saul to join him there to teach these believers about Jesus Christ. Now Saul is the perfect man for the church at Antioch at this time and place. He's an educated and theologically trained Jew. He was a Pharisee who, being from Tarsus, is familiar with Greek culture and Gentile ways. And as a convert to Christ, he can take the Old Testament promises and explain their fulfillment in Christ in a way that intertwines the stories of Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets with their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And do so away in a way that makes it clear for these Gentiles. So Saul of Tarsus has been prepared for this moment by God and sought out, for, sought out by God's man, Barnabas. Verse 27 of Acts 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And these four verses that end chapter 11, we see the unity of the Gentile and Jewish Christians and their churches emphasized. The church in Judea and Jerusalem is under the hand of persecution. But it's the hearts of the Christians in predominantly Gentile Antioch 
those who have benefited spiritually from the believers in the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church that sent them Barnabas. The Jerusalem church that sent them prophets. The apostles and the prophets being the foundation of the early church. These Christians at Antioch reach out to meet the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem. And they gave out of gratitude for what Christ had done for them. And the scripture makes clear they understood the brotherhood they shared with the Jewish Christians as children of God in Christ. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 11. And I think it's really kind of an unfortunate place for a chapter break. Now, the chapter breaks are not inspired. They're just there to help us find our way around. Because the difficulties for the church in Jerusalem are apparent from the offerings soon to be delivered by Saul and Barnabas. The church there is in need of financial support. The pressure of embracing Christ in the midst of a hostile community of Jews and Romans in Jerusalem makes it difficult for them to weather tough times when they come. And it's taking its toll economically, socially, and personally on the church. And now that intensity of persecution is ratcheted up to an ultimate level. Not just from the Jews this time, but also from the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. James is killed and Peter is put in prison. And Peter is likely to be executed soon. Now there's two James mentioned in this chapter. This James, the one who is killed by Herod, is James the Apostle. He's the first of the apostles to be martyred for his faith. He's the brother of the Apostle John. The two of them being the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen together. This is the James who was one of the three closest apostles to our Lord. Later in this chapter, we're going to hear about the other James, the brother of our Lord, who was not a believer during our Lord's earthly ministry, but became a believer and a leader in the church of Jerusalem. It's possible this persecution of the church began about the time of the visit of the prophets and the prediction of famine mentioned in chapter 11, verse 27. It's perhaps related to the conversion of the Gentiles described in chapters 10 and 11 at Cornelius' house. Its instigator, Herod, was a vain politician. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, who expanded and embellished the temple in Jerusalem during the time of Christ. Herod Agrippa is his name. Herod Agrippa's father, or rather Herod Agrippa's grandfather, is the one who ordered the slaughter of the male babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. Well, his grandson hasn't fallen far from the tree, as he is a very evil man as well. A man who had been brought up in Rome. He's a friend of the Roman emperor Caligula, and later an ally of the emperor Claudius. 
And as a result of his friends in Rome, he was given political responsibility, a position of power in the land of Israel. And finally, he came to a place of authority where he was called Herod the king. He's the man that lies in the background of all of chapter 12. And while Herod provides the background, Peter steps to the fore once again. This is really the last time we see Peter in the book of Acts. And one of the last times we'll see Jerusalem. Now Herod was very pleased with the fact that he had been able to take James, one of the twelve apostles, and put him to to death. And the Jews, whom Herod liked to ingratiate himself with, rejoiced over it. And Herod was anxious to have a little more favor with those Jews. And so he thought, I'll take another prisoner. So he put his hand upon Peter. And he put him in prison to guard him. He assigned four squads of soldiers. Four squads of four soldiers each to watch him 24 hours a day. Why? Well, remember to Acts chapter 5? Peter's already escaped from prison once. The angel delivered him before. Herod wants to make sure this doesn't happen again. Also in this section, we run into our second instance of that little word, but. Because while Herod is marshalling all this power, and while he while he executes James, and he imprisons Peter, what else is going on? Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Of course, Luke can't help but remind us of what this relatively small assembly of believers in Jerusalem had. But earnest prayer, he writes. They had the privilege of prayer. And in having the privilege of prayer, they were able to reach out to the Lord God. Now, it was a tribute to the power of Peter and to the early church that they had to put four squads of soldiers to guard him. But earnest prayer, that's what the four squads of soldiers are trying to keep from happening. Putting Peter in prison, putting him under guard, putting soldiers all around him, keeping the soldiers there 24 hours a day. But earnest prayer was made by the church to God for Peter. What's the result? Look at verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, about to bring Peter out on that very night, we assume that means to execute him. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, 
Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. What do you suppose the Jewish people were expecting? I think they were expecting another execution, just like James. Notice what Peter's doing in the midst of all this. He's sleeping. Would you have been sleeping? I don't think I would have been sleeping. I think this one night I would have found it really hard to sleep. But evidently, Peter is sleeping pretty soundly until the angel shows up, shines a light in his cell, strikes Peter on the side, and wakes him up. It's the stroke of God that brings release and freedom. But while Peter is awakened by the determination of God, his guards are sleeping by the determination of God. Now, if I'm in prison and an angel shows up to set me free, I'm thinking I'm ready to head out the door immediately. There's no time for anything but to run. Well, not so for Peter. The angel doesn't say, Peter, get out of here as fast as you can. God's power is not in a hurry. God does things in his own time and in his own way. And so the angel is perfectly content. He, he tells Peter to get up, to put on your clothes. That's really the meaning of gird yourself, as the King James says. Put on your clothes, put on your shoes, put on your coat, and then follow me. The angel prepares Peter to go outside. It's almost like the angel is saying, we're not running out of here like desperate fugitives from justice. Rather, we are leaving this prison like messengers of the Almighty God should, like an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ should. Now, it's evident from verse 9 that Peter is not exactly sure all of this is real. Is it a vision or is it just a dream? But when he gets out and when the angel left him, he realized the whole thing was real and was really a supernatural deliverance from the Lord. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now this Mary who is mentioned here is the mother of John Mark. Also happens to be, who John Mark also happens to be the first cousin of Barnabas. We're going to see John Mark at the end of this chapter and again in Acts chapter 15. This John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. So here John Mark, we see very clearly, is in association with Barnabas. And you can see in the early church, there were quite a few of these family relationships that arose out of the fact that people would become believers and then they would witness to their family who would become believers as well. 
Evidently, when Rhoda comes to the door and hears Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she forgets to open the door. And so she ran back into the meeting and she said, Peter's out there. Well, how do you think these Christians, full of faith, they've been praying to the Lord about Peter? And they know that God answers prayer. How do you think they responded? Well, we've already read it. They think she's crazy. They tell her, you're out of your mind. The last thing they expected was the answer to their prayers. My guess is they thought by now Peter might be executed. But give Rhoda, give Rhoda credit. She's persistent. And Peter keeps knocking. And they finally open the door. And after they actually see him, they realize at last God has answered their prayers. But fortunately, God's answer kept knocking. Don't you just have to love the way Peter put it when he told them the whole story? He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Now, the text says it was the angel that brought Peter out of prison. But Peter knows that behind the activities of the angel is the guiding hand and power of the Lord. That's really wonderfully appropriate. Because remember what we've been saying over and over as we've gone through the book of Acts. Luke tells us right at the first couple of verses in the book that this book is a story of the continued ministry of what our active and living Lord Jesus Christ is doing and teaching, even as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then Peter, wise man that he was, he departed and went into another place. He was sensible enough to realize that when he got arrested and thrown into prison, he was very close to losing his life. He decided the best thing was to lay low for a bit and return to witness another day. Peter knew if he was going to hang around Jerusalem with Herod Agrippa, the king, the chances are that he would find his way back into that prison. So he departed and went to another place. Look at verse 18 of chapter 12 with me. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. You can only imagine the terror in the minds of these soldiers when they discovered Peter was gone. What has become of our prisoner? I thought he was tied to both of us with a chain. How did he get out of both of the doors, past both guards, and out the iron gate? And when Herod investigated and didn't find him, and after questioning the guards, he put them to death and headed back to his palace in Caesarea, where we find him in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Keep in mind as you read that last line that our author Luke is a physician. 
I think it's fair to say he knows how to turn a phrase when it comes to the diagnosis of a terminal disease. This is likely some fast-moving and devastating illness that Herod has contracted, clearly brought upon Herod by the justice and judgment of God. Suffice it to say, it was not a nice way to die. God's purpose in including this as the summary of chapter 12 is not subtle. God wants us to understand what happens to people like Herod Agrippa. So the death of Herod is described in detail here. The point of the story is a simple one. Herod was displeased with the people of Tyre and Sidon, two cities north of Jerusalem and outside of Israel. These cities were economically and agriculturally dependent upon Herod, and so they bribed Blastus. That's what it means when it says they persuaded him. They persuaded Blastus with money. Now, Blastus is the chamberlain of the king. He's what you might call Herod's executive secretary. He was the person who had control of all his personal affairs, including his schedule. And so they put some money in Blastus' palm and sought an audience with Herod. And so one day, Herod put on the royal robes, gave a speech to the crowd from Tyre and Sidon, and the people started to shout, saying, The voice of a god and not of a man. They did this in order to ingratiate themselves to the king, to gain his favor in their affairs with him. They were showering him with flattery. flattery. And as they were shouting, immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down for one reason. He did not give glory to God. Think of the contrast between Cornelius the Roman Gentile centurion in chapter 11, and Herod, King Herod, the king, in chapter 12. All Herod had was a result of the Lord God allowing him to have it. Every soldier, every slave Herod had was only due to the Lord allowing him to have it. In this case, God did not delay judgment until after Herod's physical death where no human eye could see. No, God executed judgment in full view of Herod's officials, of his army, of the people, and now it's recorded in all eternity in God's word. The ancient historian Josephus gives the account of Herod falling ill while he gives this speech and dying five days later. This is fitting, isn't it? This is justice, right? Herod was not a good man. He was an evil man, a very evil man. He is one who excelled in evil, and he died the kind of death that he should have died. The Lord struck him. He didn't give God the glory, and so he was eaten by worms. The kind of death he died was probably one of the most unpleasant of all deaths. And that brings us to the third instance of my favorite word today. Of but. Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The outcome of all this, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The gospel goes forth. The gospel bears fruit. People are saved. Jew and Gentile, men and women, people of all nations. And verse 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, 
whose other name was Mark. Barnabas and Saul head back to Antioch after delivering the gift of the Gentile church to the Jerusalem church as described at the end of chapter 11. And now here they are again at the end of chapter 12. In all likelihood, they have witnessed the events of this chapter and do they have some stories to tell in Antioch of the mighty acts of God through the gospel of Christ in Jerusalem. Let me conclude with just a few comments and some application. One notices, of course, the power of prayer in our passage today. It's a constant presence in the church in Acts and must be so in our individual lives and in the ministry of our church. There's another thing one notices here. That is the total sufficiency of the Lord in the midst of any situation. I wonder if the lessons of Acts 12 isn't what prompted Peter to record in the scriptures what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. No matter the situation, he cares for you. Peter learned to trust the Lord. We have the benefit of the word of God so we too can trust in him. I reminded that while James the Apostle was killed by Herod, he too, by his humble witness for Christ, was exalted at the proper time to the very presence of Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. Now one final thing. Notice the certainty of sovereign retribution. Herod the king killed James the Apostle of Jesus Christ. But it's Herod the king who is killed at the end. The angel struck Peter and delivered him from prison. The angel struck Herod Agrippa in divine judgment and delivered him to eternal wrath. The message is clear for the church and for those who oppose it. The spread of the gospel will advance and it will not be stopped by governmental powers or political leaders or religious hypocrites consumed with their own importance and power. Just as God judged Herod Agrippa, so God will judge him. Christ's church will be built. And neither the gates of Hades, nor the gates of Rome, or anything or anyone else will stop the progress of the gospel. The victory belongs to Christ. Jesus will return. His kingdom will be established in all the fullness and majesty of Almighty God. As the author of Hebrews says in the introduction to his letter, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. His gospel and his kingdom cannot be stopped. Just as our Lord was encouraging his young, persecuted church with that truth, we too should rejoice and praise God for the faithful and steadfast love of our living and active Savior, Jesus Christ, who is with us always, even to the end of the age.